Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. I am Dr. Ikrashi Gupta-Chima, your host for New Books and Gender Studies. And today I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Keisha Ali, Dr. Amina beverly Aldin, and Dr. Shahnaz Haqqani to talk about their insightful, informative, and very necessary book, Tying the Knot, A Feminist Womanist Guide to Muslim Marriage in America. The book just came out with Boston University Press, and it is open access, so everyone everywhere can read it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Before we start talking about the book, could you all please tell our audience a little bit about yourselves and your research, starting with Dr. Ali? Sure. Um, I'm Keisha Ali. I am a professor in religious studies at Boston University, where I've been teaching for the past 15 years. Uh, I'm a scholar of Islam and gender, and my current scholarly work is actually about the gender politics of academic Islamic studies. Uh, But over the years, I've done a fair bit about marriage and sexuality in Muslim past uh, and present. And that's part of where this book fits. Thank you. Um, Dr. Shainaz Haqqani. Hi, everyone. Shahnaz Aqani here. Um, I am an assistant professor of religion at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. I have a PhD in Islamic studies from UT Austin, uh, which I got in 2018. And I am a person. I'm currently writing two books, uh, one of which is on the topic that my chapter in this book is on, on Muslim women's marriage to non-Muslims. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Amin al I was just enjoying listening to everyone else. Yeah, so this is fair. I am um, a professor emeritus in Islamic studies out of DePaul University in Chicago. And currently, I am just been hired, as a matter of fact, to direct a program on African American inter- Muslim internationalism out of George Mason. So that's my current research. Nice. Thank you so much. Um, All right. So I'm going to start with Dr. Ali. Please tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book. How did this project come to be? So actually, um, you can blame the two colleagues who are with me on this podcast. It's, It's really their fault. Uh, so, uh, so Dr. Aldine actually bears primary responsibility because sometime late in uh, 2020, I think, or maybe very early 2021, uh, we had a conversation and, you know, she really sort of laid down the law. She said, Keisha, we need more research about Muslim women in America that takes really seriously um, women's voices, women's scholarship, the actual conditions on the ground. And I said, but it's a pandemic and I'm chairing my department. I couldn't possibly. And she said, well, we really need it. Um, And, you know, sometimes people are just implacable, right? You say, but, 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 and they say, yeah, so. (laughs) And 
ended up happening uh, was that I put together a reader called Half of Faith, the subtitle of which is American Muslim and Divorce in the 21st Century. And that was our initial foray here. It's mostly things that were published before, but with some new materials. So a chapter from Dr. Aldine on Muslim women as potential guardians for newly transitioned African-American Muslim women, um, but more generally around the, the function of the idea of a marriage guardian in Muslim contexts in America. Uh, Zahra Ayubi wrote something new for us about divorce, but the primary uh, meat of the reader was a series of things that had been published over the past 20 years in a variety of venues, scholarly journals, chapters in books, and if you trace the history, you see a kind of conversation that has evolved. Also just really bringing things together um, that were scattered before um, with the goal of making them more accessible and informing contemporary conversations. Well, that's where this becomes Dr. Hakani's fault because <laughs> as you may know, she is a host for New Books Islam and she wanted to do a podcast on the Half of Faith Reader. And so she gathered us all together and uh, it was me and Professor Aldin and uh, Professor Qureshi Landis who also has a chapter in the volume and another colleague. and we got to talking about the reader and it became clear that there was more that still needed to happen. The reader is really uh, an academic work that brings a lot of granular conversations about policy, about history, about thought, but it's not um, primarily geared toward practical, okay, so what do we do with this? And that's where, uh, in the course of this podcast, you can hear us sort of start to frame the tying the knot reader in real time, saying, well, what if we did a follow-up? Well, what if we did something that was practice-oriented? What if we did something that took its cue from Dr. Ayubi's chapter on divorce in that volume and really thought about how do you bridge um, the the intellectual and the practical. Um, and and so, you know, here we are <laughs> a year later, less than a year later, uh, with with the follow-up. Um, Half a year later. That was in December. I interviewed you all in December. Yeah. You yeah. Don't yeah. Have when there's a real goal, how you ladies can pull it together. That is very impressive. And it is a very important book. So I'm glad that it came to the market so quickly <laughs> and everybody has access to it, which is an even more wonderful thing. So um, how would you introduce this book to our audience? What does the book do? What were its goals? Oh, is that still me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can begin. I'll just I'll just say that for my project, I, I'm in a lot of Facebook groups. I'm very active on social media, and I the the kinds of questions I get from Muslim women, um, both me specifically via email 
and also just these Facebook groups that I'm on, Muslim women are looking for things like, what is, how do I make an egalitarian contract? One of the latest questions I just got two days ago, um, how can, what are some resources that exist for me as a lesbian Muslim um, trying to validate, find validity for mar my marriage? Or what are some ways that I can do this in a way that's compassionate and egalitarian and so on? And of course, uh, women's marriage to non-Muslims, like, you know, they're looking for resources. And I have seen the book shared by folks um, on these Facebook groups. I'm constantly sharing individual chapters. That's one of the things that I loved, love about this book. Um, the website provides the entire book also, but you also have individual chapters that you can download. Um, and each chapter then includes the table of contents. Um, you know, it, it has, it's just, I feel like it's done in such a wonderful, I want to say perfect way. Um, and so it's already being used in practically by people who have been searching for something like this so desperately. Yeah, that's very true. Thank you so much. Um, all right. So now I want to talk a little bit about the title of the book. You have used the terms feminism and womanism um, in the title. What is the difference between both of these terms and how do these terms relate to Muslim and Islamic feminisms? And is womanism as contentious of a term amongst Muslim scholars of gender as is feminism? So I can take a first stab at that, mm -hmm. and then I hope Professor Aldine will also chime in on this. The question of how to define feminism, whether Muslim feminism, Islamic feminism, or feminism broadly, is among the most, I think, um, contentious, but also consequential issues that, that we face today. Um, and I think for purposes of this volume, I think some of the contributors identify very clearly as feminist, others as womanist, which I'll come back to in a moment, and others um, don't explicitly frame their contributions as feminist. But I think what we are aiming at here is really centering people from marginalized genders. We are really centering scholarship that puts the voices of the people who are most affected at the forefront of our concern and really thinks about how to promote human flourishing, equality within the family at the forefront of what we're doing. Womanism is a less contentious term, if only because many, many Muslims have never heard it before, right? Um, so womanism is a term that builds off Alice Walker's idea, right? Womanism is to feminism as purple is to lavender. Uh, the idea is that womanism builds from and with African-American and Black women's experiences, uses those experiences and knowledge and the wisdom gained from them as a resource, right? And as um, the basis for moving in various kinds of domains. And there's a very specific tradition of Christian womanism uh, including within the academy. And our contributor, Deborah Majid, 
who passed away in March, actually, as the book was coming into production, um, developed Muslim womanism as a framework for her research on polygyny among African-American Muslims associated with W.D. Muhammad's community. And that is, I think, um, an essential principle guiding also her work uh, for this book with Muslim widows within that community. Thank you so much. I'm sorry to hear about Dr. Deborah Majid. Uh, Dr. Aldeen, would you like to add something to this? Uh, the, the only thing, I think Keisha kind of recounted a, a long, con- well, an email conversation where that was <clears throat> discussed. And I would say, especially for Muslim women, the uh, states of being and thoughts about marriage or before marriage or after marriage and divorce, all of those things, for African-American Muslim women tend to be a little bit different as their relation, maybe it says purple is the lavender, to um, immigrant households. And in reading this book, and I saw some of the things, you know, where as for immigrant women, there might be a question of, can I marry a non-Muslim man? Many African-American Muslim women are already married to non-Muslim men when they begin their transition into Islam. So the questions become different, the concerns and the uh, liberal choices are very different. But I think Keisha did a wonderful job, if you remember in the introduction, of trying to explain how we brought those two positions together. Thank you so much. Um, so as you shared, that's, uh, tying the knot is, um, it, it furthers the conversation that we started in Half of Faith, American Muslim Marriage and Divorce in the 20th Century. And uh, both of your books share many of the same contributors, but you have four new contributors in Tying the Knot who bring truly valuable perspectives and suggestions about interfaith marriages, LGBTQIA plus marriages, and muta marriage due to, uh, to this book. How do you share the idea of the book with the new contributors? And how did you all decide to include these non-cis-heteropatriarchal marriages in the book? And uh, what kind of a Muslim community you imagine when you talk about these issues? Well, I'll let Dr. Haqqani chime in as she was one of the people we dragooned into participating. Um, I, I put a little guilt trip on her. I basically said, you know, look, you got us into this mess. The least you can do uh, is, is give us this chapter. Um, but and let me back up a minute. I think one of the things that I liked least about um, Half of Faith was that it was less inclusive than I think our broader conversations have become um, because it also was operating on a kind of um, pandemic, let's make the kind of time frame. It was you know, we have this material out there. These are people in my network. I can reach out to them. We can pull it together. 
you know, I didn't ask, we did get a couple of new things, but it, it really is mostly existing work. And in the case of the new contributors, um, I was really asking them to, if not start from scratch, um, then certainly write something new and purpose built that might be their first publication on a given topic. And so it was a bigger ask um, and it demanded a different kind of approach that I didn't feel up to in the first case, right? It was, it was a question of not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good for the first reader. But here, since we were starting from scratch, it seemed really important to be more inclusive. Um, and I think, you know, very deliberately, we wanted to have intermarriage as an issue. Um, this is an issue that, um, that, as Dr. Aldine said, you know, isn't really an issue in some communities, right? It's just a fact of life. And there are other communities where this is a huge taboo, right? It's a real problem. And it's a real, um, you know, it's kind of a third rail, right, of the contemporary conversations about Muslim marriage in some communities, not all, but some. And yet it's really happening. Um, the question of LGBTQ Muslim marriage, the question of um, muta marriage, you know, because it has been a flashpoint for controversies and for Sunni polemics in so many contexts, you know, we were really aware that expanding the circle of contributors was potentially in each of those three cases, potentially going to be seen as, no, that's a bridge too far. Now, finally, you've overstepped, right? There might be some people who would welcome Sunni inclusion, but not queer marriage. There might be some people who would say, well, you know, Sunni Muslim intermarriage, I guess I can see how things might be different, but like, are you really going to include muta? Like, is that really marriage? And I just didn't want to entertain any of that um, because it felt really important that we have those resources. Now, does everybody who contributed to the book agree with everybody else, agree with the approaches that they're taking, agree with all of the arguments they make? Absolutely not, right? But it seemed really important to cast the net broadly in part because we're operating very much apart from, which is not always to say in opposition to, but apart from certain kinds of dominant understandings of marriage that have it as rigidly hierarchical and very strongly uh, gender binaried, not just in terms of who can participate, but in terms of the roles that get allocated to the participants. And, you know, that's not where we are. Um, and if, if they let us start infighting, right, if we're fighting for crumbs from the patriarchal table, right, um, it's over, right? We have to build solidarity outside of that.
Yeah, definitely. And it is such an invaluable resource for people, you know, in um, non-heterosexual communities or marriages or relationships that they can access all of this information through this book. Um, so I'm just going to continue your point about muta marriage, because as um, uh, I think Dr. Shirin Yusuf and Dr. Nusheen Yusuf Sadiq also say in their chapter that it is a relatively obscure form of marriage or contract. And a lot of times it is also a form where men with bad niya, bad intention, find more room to manipulate women without much accountability. Um, so is there any way, in your opinion, to destigmatize muta among Muslim communities to empower women? So I'll just say very briefly um, that I think their chapter is a start. Right. About so many things, I think having honest conversations about what happens is a really important way to begin. And I think that's true for lots of things. The other thing I'll say is that uh, while muta marriage is used in this way, so is, you know, misyar marriage in the Gulf. We had a tremendous amount of conversation about that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, is so is Rodfi uh, marriage, right? In some, there are lots and lots and lots of ways that patriarchy gets you. And I think it's really important that we think about the commonalities as well as the differences. And this is one of the uh, very important contributions, I think, um, of that chapter is it says, we talk too much about the temporary part and not enough about the marriage part, Right. And I, I think that's very, very important. I want to also add on Muta. Um, so uh, as, as Shirin and um, are these, I think they're siblings, right? So Shirin and Nushin, as they also discuss in the chapter, a lot of Muslims uh, use Muta as a way to get to know the person, right? If, if you have very strict ideas, and I'm using the word strict here, um, I don't I, I should think about what I mean by strict here. But if we're using the word strict to mean that, you know, you can't, you get, you can't talk to somebody of a different sex, of the op, uh, quote unquote opposite sex um, about issues that might involve intimacy, then you need to have certain boundaries uh, of modesty with that person. And so the mutan merit, the mutan contract gives you uh, the space and opportunity to go ahead and have those conversations without fearing that you might be crossing any boundaries. And as they also discuss in the chapter, you can... Uh, you can include in your, because it, it involves a contract, just like a nikah does, and just like a permanent nikah marriage. And so what you, you can say in the contract that no consummation, you can say no, you know, uh, no, whatever boundaries you'd like to to place on your partner. And so people forget, like Keisha, Dr. Ali just pointed out, people forget that it has, that we focus so much on the temporary part that we forget the marriage part of the temporary marriage uh, discussion. Let me just add, you know, all of us are sitting here in um, U.S. society where there are boyfriends and girlfriends all over the place. Uh, sex beats you to death no matter where you turn, children's hours or no, you know, what, whatever it is. And that uh, things that happen in Muslim-majority states as antiquated as many of them are, to think that you can continue to not only have that as an ideal, but an enforceable ideal is crazy. 
I'm just, you know, uh, it's, I mean, it's just crazy. The kids are, are all over the place. And the men, young men, certainly have both privilege and license to go to bed with whomever it is they choose. And many of the strictures are put on young women. It's not that the strictures shouldn't be there, but in a different way. You, you, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's not the, the stricture of you should be chased and you should marry a dog, you know. But <laughs> the, the, the strictures for uh, merit, marital fidelity, for example, and those kinds of things should be there, but they should be articulated in that way because here, largely, people are marrying strangers, and as countries get broken up like Syria and some other places where families are scattered all across the globe, their notions of inheritances, their notions of even a filial uh, <clears throat> home are being torn asunder. So they're thrown in to different kinds of circumstances where these anal retentive men have not kept up. You know, and if we wait for them to keep up, then the people who are going to be harmed the most are young women. Yes, that's true. Thank you. Was that diplomatic enough, Keisha? (laughs) Well said. (laughs) Well said. Yes. Um, All right. I want to go back to the point that you are making earlier, Dr. Ali, and you mentioned Dr. Deborah Majid's research about polygyny, and you both the word uh, you use the words uh, polygyny and polygamy in the book. I think interchangeably. Um, is there a difference between both of these terms? I mean, just at the level of semantics, right? Just at the level of, of the the technical meaning of the term, polygamy encompasses both the possibility of more than one wife, which is polygyny and the possibility of polyandry, multiple husbands. Um, Within Muslim contexts, they're used interchangeably. And we have both in the book because we let authors basically use the language that they thought would be appropriate for and familiar to the audience that they were imagining. And so people use Arabic terminology where it seems appropriate. People use Urdu terminology. People translate things in different ways. Um, And we really wanted um, to have each chapter um, be, you know, available and informative for everyone, but also particularly relevant for and targeted to Um, the audience that it most concerns, right? So you'll note that the chapter on muta is not an explanation for why muta should be permissible and why Sunni should, it's not that, right? It is taking that ground for granted. The chapter on LGBTQ marriage says, hey, lots of people have already tried to make the argument for permissibility. We're taking that as read and talking about something different, right? talking about what do you think you're what why do you want to get queer muslim married and what does that look like for you and and what does marriage mean in this kind of context what are you hoping for what are you planning for um and i think those are really important conversations to be having 
Yes, that's very true, definitely. Um, with that, I'll come to you, Dr. Shahnaz Hakani. So your chapter is about Muslim women's marriage to non-Muslim men, which still remains a very disputed issue among most Muslim scholars, uh, despite the increasing number of such marriages. Could you please share some details of your chapter with our audience? Yeah, sure. So I... Um... I'll, I'll, I'll begin talking about why, what the origins of that chapter are, why even wanted, I wanted to write this chapter. And, and um, you know, contrary to what Dr. Ali suggested earlier, I, I was so happy and relieved and, 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 and grateful and glad <laughs> to be contributing to the volume. Um, I mean, I just, I, I, the, the interview we did in December, you know, for Half of Faith was just so beautiful. And I, I, I was so lucky, I'm so lucky to have been able to uh, work with them all on the, on the, on the, chap, on the book. Um, and so I, the reason, uh, the origins of this chapter are that I get a lot of emails, uh, questions from Muslim women who are in a relationship with a non-Muslim person and they want to know, you know, cause it, 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 of course the internet and everybody will tell them their imams will tell them their families will tell them that it's haram. They cannot stay, they cannot marry anybody who's not Muslim. Um, and so they, but they're very, very sure that that's not true, uh, partly because they may, you know, their partner might be so good to them and the partner might be very, um, I don't know, a very understanding of their faith and, and, and might be interested in Islam. And so they want to know what, you know, if there are alter alternative um, teachings or messages or interpretations of the, of the claims that it's haram. And so I wanted to offer a resource that, 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 reminds them that one, you know, the Quran is complicated, Islam is complicated. And so when people make claims like it's haram in Islam, we need to ask exactly what is meant by Islam. These women ask me what Islam has to say on this. They tell me very explicitly, they're not interested in what men have to say or what the fiqh has to say. And as an academic, I'm, I'm trying to complicate it and say, but it's really hard to define Islam, you know, in the way that these, I think a lot of these folks want me to define it. And so, um, but there is a lot of room in the tradition for something like the permissibility of women's interfaith marriage um, and opinions on the topic have evolved. Today, they, people are much more um, you know, aware of, this, uh, of that diversity than the historical tradition. And so what happens in this chapter is I, in, in the form of a Q&A, uh, it's a Q&A format chapter, I'm, I ask questions like, why might, why might a Muslim woman even consider marrying a non-Muslim person? Um, what, you know, what are what, practical advice for them? How can they, you know, gently tell their parents about their relationship, which is much harder in practice, it turns out, than it is to, to write about. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and people are looking for resources. And I, I, I show also that the Quran itself, um, there is room in the Quran for marriage, at least to other believers. Um, and then I, I even address the question of why the tradition and or the Quran literally seems to have problems with marriage between Muslims and mushriks, which uh, contrary to what we might hear publicly uh, in the mainstream, it's for both genders, not just for women, because people will constantly use the Quranic verse 221 to say it's not allowed for women, but they, they skip the part that says also not okay for men. Um, but it turns out it's a lot more complicated because the prophet's daughter, Zainab herself, was married to a mushrik for decades. And the prophet, whatever the tradition has to say on that, because the tradition, the, the Muslim tradition, um, it struggles with that reality. And so we, you know, we have scholars trying to figure out how could she have married, how could the prophet not have 
uh, divorced her, right? She, the prophet never divorced her. The prophet never told her. We don't have any record of him saying you're divorced. You need to divorce him. But she's married to a mushrik for decades. And eventually he converts. But the marriage was never um, ended by the prophet. And so pointing out these things in the tradition, in the Quran, uh, the different ways that scholars have historically, uh, the different methods, exegetical methods that scholars have used to arrive at certain conclusions, to interpret the Quran. Um, I, I use some of those strategies in my chapter to show, to, to show my readers and to show Muslim women who are affected by this prohibition um, that there are some very, in my opinion, very valid, very Islamically valid arguments uh, in support of women's marriage to non-Muslim and to, to non-Muslim people. And, I'm, I'm ho- I, and I know that, like I said earlier, it is being used by people who are affected by this mainstream prohibition. Um, and there's a lot of, I, I, there's practical advice that I hope will be useful to people. I know it gets harder in practice, but, um, you know, I, and I'm, it's a part of my research project also. I'm writing my book on this topic um, and women are sharing different things that, that work for them. I think just a few days ago, one contacted me. I, I interviewed her a few months ago for my, for my research and, she was trying to figure out how to tell her family about her relationship, um, and, and they finally gave in. And these are women who, in my research, there are women who have, they're keeping their marriage, some of them are married already, and they're keeping it secret from their families, um, and they've been married for, for, for years in some cases. And in, in some of those cases, they, only, uh, they plan to only tell the parents, when it, the, the, the girl's parents, when they want to have children. Um, and then in other cases... They had to break up with the partner for months or years, and then get back together because they realized no, they can't give up that give up on that person. And then, nearly a decade later, they'll finally get their parents' blessings. So, women are facing such, un, in my opinion, unnecessary challenges, um, and especially in a context like today, where they are much more likely to work with and come across a non-Muslim partner than they are a Muslim partner. Um, and so I, I, I don't think it's fair, the kinds of uh, experiences they have and what mus- the Muslim community seems to be telling them. And so I'm hoping um, the book will reach those who could benefit from it. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much. Um, Dr. Aldine, so your chapter, Wish I Had Known, is, was so, so fascinating to me. Could you please share some details of your chapter with our audience? Um, I think it was equally fascinating to our editor, Keisha, uh, because it was all over the place. And I was having all of these conversations. And, you know, what, um, I'm I'm not pronouncing your first name correctly. Say it again. Ikra? No, not you. Okay, sorry. (laughs) Okay. And what she was saying is that Immigrant Muslim women and men brought those notions of marriage to the African-American community, I'm sure to the white community and to the Latino American community. Uh, Much of that was ignored because you have people in transition where the um, process is a little bit different. What I was wishing uh, is that we could have more com- and no, Keisha, I'm not asking. <laughs> that we can have more conversation because she will shoot me for real this time. <laughs> that we can have more intra community conversations and share perhaps resources, but also share strengths. 
So in talking with a bunch of women at various times, uh, and, you know, being a legal expert in Illinois, one of the things I was confronting all the time was in court and Muslim men dragging in the Quran. And I'm saying, you probably never had it in your hands before. Why do you have it today? But nevertheless, bringing it in, oh, you see right here, it says I can beat her. And the judge is looking and then looking at me saying, really? You know, and I'm saying, no, that's, that's, you know, I'm not going to tell you what I said, but that, no, that's, that's not what it means. Or families um, on one side of the thing, kind of excommunicating from the family, young women who had relations outside of that little Muslim box. Because then there was all this speculation about, well, what did that relationship involve, et cetera. So it became of what I wish I had known. And a lot of the women on either side don't know anything about the household finances. They don't, they, many have not been introduced. Some, I mean, you know, social security, spousal benefits, and so a lot of women wind up just totally out of out of fortune uh, because they have nothing to support themselves. And I worked with Hamdard in Chicago for a few decades. You know, you have Muslim women leaving abusive marriages, and they have nothing with which to support themselves. Uh, and they could be black or anywhere else; it doesn't matter. Um, but then we also had things like just not knowing, because you're marrying a stranger. You know, you're being told, well, he has to remain a stranger to you. And the women are saying, really? You, you really expect me to go home with a stranger in my or his house kind of thing? And wishing they had known. But for African-American women in particular, in the, I'll say the middle ages of Islam in America, many of the women who transitioned to Islam were college graduates. And they were on their way to being, you know, lawyers, doctors, engineers, etc. Um, and then being told, especially by the South Asian community, that women needed to be home. And they're saying, really, that is not our history, <laughs> you know. I mean, women are not these passive uh, sit and wait for someone to do something for you. And, you know, in good times, you share those things, right? So many of them stopped their treks toward professions. You know, if they were in nursing school, they dropped out. If they were in medical school, they dropped out. They dropped out of graduate programs left and right. Um, only to find out 20, 25, 30 years later, oh, my God, now I'm too old. Okay? And what do you want me to do now? My kids are grown. You know, you said I need to stay home, but there's no way for me to recoup either the monetary benefits of having had a stable and permanent job and all of those things. So the chapter is really about their musings 
and me asking about maturity because, and, I, you know, having looked at Islam closely, more closely than I care to, for the last 40 years across cultures, there, there seems to be a tacit kind of cultural agreement amongst Muslim women and Muslim majority states that I give over myself, my autonomy, my ability to think, my ability to do a whole bunch of stuff once married. Um, when I, 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 I'm not sure quite how that happened. And, and why is it the case? Because they pass it on to their daughters. I've taught many of their daughters, and it's still there. Oh, I'm, I'm just in class. I'm not going to do the best I can do because my mom is going to make sure I'm married off. And I'm saying, can I talk to your mother? <laughs> you know, here's a genius sitting in front of me. Why is she doing that? Doesn't mean you can't get married. I mean, anybody should be honored to have a mate who is this bright. And certainly the community needs it. So it was all of those conversations about how, I wish I had known how to get a balance between, and it's, it's a balance between the privileges afforded men and professions and the lack of them for women. Right, yes. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so with that, I'll move on to the next question, which is about Dr. Zainab uh, Shahar's chapter. So Dr. Zainab Shahar uses the term ethics of care and ethics of relation in their chapter, LGBTQ Muslim marriage praxis and ethics of relation. Do you think this ethics of care is extendable to all kinds of marital relationships that this book discusses? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the themes that runs through the book is how much actually applies across the board, right? The issues that Dr. Aldeen was talking about are by no means limited to Muslims, right? Displaced homemaker is a huge thing in American history. And it was a huge thing in Iran. And the question of how do you balance, right, um, certain kinds of expectations, especially at moments of great social change, like the women's movement in the U.S., the civil rights movement in the U.S., the Iranian revolution, right, uh, changes in terms of women's education patterns worldwide. Anytime you have a particular kind of upheaval, you have some people um, many people struggling to adjust and cope, um, especially when benefits fall more to some groups than others. We see that even with the pandemic, right, which is huge social disruption, um, but much more disruptive to some than others in terms of the health consequences, in terms of managing households, in terms of burdens of childcare, all of these things. So that side of things, those questions um, arise over and over again. And for the chapters um, 
that I sort of mentally categorized as voices of experience, Dr. Aldine's chapter and Dr. Majid's chapter on widows. In part, those are really about what do people embarking on new marriages need to pay attention to, right, from people who've been there. What can we learn? What mistakes can we avoid making if we listen to people who have had certain kinds of experiences and would do things differently? The other thing that I think is really important in Dr. Aldine's chapter and Dr. Majid's chapter, uh, and we also see it in Dr. Qureshi Landis' chapter, which is about conditions for marriage contracts. It's in Dr. Zahra Ayubi's chapter, where she talks about premarital conversations that can lead into a contract. All of these um, address the issue of resources, of money, of housework, of what's going to be shared and what's going to be separate of expectations, right? What is the agreement that we're coming to? And then, you know, further down the line, how might we need to hammer that out? Anybody who's been married for more than five minutes knows that you can start out with a particular kind of agreement and then life happens and you have to be able to renegotiate and rebalance because life happens, right? You change, the world changes, and you need to be able to do that. But these are very practical pragmatic things that relate to how people actually live together in partnership. And those practical pragmatic things matter. Zainab Shahar in their chapter addresses some of those practical things, right? Um, and does it within a broader kind of framework, which is really about how are we caring for each other, how are we in relation to each other and to various communities. And so while it is less attentive to the nitty gritty of who pays the rent, who pays the mortgage, right? Um, it, it is, let's say, um, maybe an uh, underlying concern of all of those things, right? Which is about how do we approach another person in our wholeness as well as in our vulnerability? And how do we acknowledge the things we can do and the things we can't do, the things we want and the things we need? Um, and obviously more broadly, the things that we understand as divine imperatives for human beings in families and communities. Um, so it's, it's not that we're coming to this book and saying, oh, well, it's just all about, you know, what, what we as individuals want and feel is right. It's no, when we search our consciences, when we read our experience, when we talk to people wiser than us who have been in a variety of kinds of times and places. When we read and read broadly, go back to 11th century marriage contracts, when we think capaciously about all of the ways that people have had of being Muslims in partnership 
with others across history, how do we put those things together in our 21st century, very American context to have relationships that honor God and each other and contribute to our flourishing as individuals and as families and as communities. And, and so I think in that sense, Zainab's chapter offers something to Muslims far beyond the LGBTQ community. Yes, wonderful. Just um, continuing your comment about resources. Are there any resources, any websites where people who want to do interfaith marriages or non-heteronormative marriages of any kind can look for officiants or um, guides beyond this book, especially since many of these people might not have strong support or guidance from within their own Muslim communities? I know that there are some individuals who do those things. Um, I, I will say, you know, my contribution to the book is a basically how to officiate a Muslim marriage, um, which is not going to be the right thing for everybody. But I do think um, there are plenty of contexts in which finding someone in a community to take on that responsibility um, can be important and meaningful and helpful. Um, and also, I'm currently working on compiling a list of uh, individuals who will officiate uh, marriages between queer Muslims, LGBTQ Muslims, interfaith marriages for women, and so on, because a lot of the folks who will do it for men won't do it for women. Um, and I, the list that I'm compiling, I've gotten from folks who have experienced, who have, uh, who have experienced with some of these individuals. And so when it's up, I'll... And I'll probably put it up somewhere. I don't know yet where it'll be, but definitely working on something. Some of these um, resources exist already in in closed Facebook group Facebook groups uh, that are for uh, Muslims who are you know in relationship with, with non Muslims or queer Muslims and so on. Um, but more publicly, it'll probably I'll probably put it on my blog. But I don't know of any resource yet that has a list of these folks. I know that MPV Muslims for Progressive Values. Uh, does do such, does offer ser such services, uh, and their prices vary depending on the person who does it. And so, I would, if anybody's thinking about it, um, you know, look, ask multiple folks on MPV before you choose somebody, because some are really expensive and others are less expensive. Um, but I don't have any resource yet. But we're working on producing something like that. Great, awesome. Uh, we are looking forward to that resource and just disseminating that within the wider community. So the last question. So both of these works, Half of Faith and Tying the Knot, are open access with Boston University Press. How was that process for you? And do you have any suggestions for scholars looking to publish open access works? So I'll take that one. First of all, Boston University doesn't have a press. So OpenBU is just the library repository. And I want to I wanna really signal that because it's actually... Um, it, there are pros and cons, right? Um, because it is not peer-reviewed academic work, even though some of the work that went into uh, Half of Faith was peer-reviewed at its time of publication. Um, it wouldn't count, for instance, as um, 
you know, part of a tenure dossier, if I were at a point in my career where I still needed to put together something like that for promotion. So one of the things about open access uh, that is a potential downside is for people still um, in a position where they need to ensure that they have a certain number of publications that meet particular criteria, um, this is not that path, right? Um, but in terms of uh, the availability of the material, it was actually a very, very straightforward process. I'm very lucky that we have a terrific, a terrific open access repository. Uh, Eleni Castro, who heads OpenBU, uh, is a librarian who helped us get essentially the equivalent of a DOI, a specific ID number, um, through the DOI's predecessor, because to get a DOI is actually really expensive, and then you have to pay every year. But there's a thing called Handle, where you get a permanent number and a stable URL, and then things just live there. So I was very lucky that I had access to that um, and was able to use this. The other thing that I was able to do is to uh, mobilize resources at my university to get a token payment for contributors. So in the first case, I actually was concerned that a lot of journals or publishers would demand a fee to republish things that had been previously published. And actually, one place asked me for a hundred bucks. Everybody else just wanted me to do a lot of really boring paperwork, um, which I did, but I didn't have to pay them. So we were able to, you know, pay a token $250 per contributor, not per item for the first, and then pay a designer uh, to do the really important work of, you know, making a real book out of these scattered, scanned PDFs so that it's e-reader friendly, so that it is accessible, um, and also so that it looks really good, right? Um, and then this time, I was able to get a slightly higher um, honorarium for each of the contributors, because I think you know, in academia, we have a habit of not paying people for their written work. And I think that's bad, right? I think you should pay people for their labor. And particularly because this was going to be open access, it's not like there would be royalties. Um, so I was able to do that money for the designer, money to make some contributor copies and copies for contributors to distribute. Because while it is wonderful to have this online that people can download and circulate and repost on their websites if they want to, right? It's a Creative Commons license. It's also really helpful to have a copy that you can send to a friend who's getting married or put in your mosque library or, you know, just have available with collections. And so I wanted to be able to do that. Um, and my institution's been great about making those resources accessible, especially because in the pandemic, um, a lot of humanities scholars weren't traveling and there are funds that go away at the end of every fiscal year if they don't get used. And so I was able to make a case um, for getting these monies and using them in this way, which is part of why the timeline um, for this project was so accelerated because the fiscal year was ending, 
right? So I wanted to be able to use the funds, which meant necessarily wrapping up the project on time. All right. Thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for your time. And thank you so much for this book. Um, I am Ikrashi Gufta Chima, your host for New Books in Gender Studies. Now go read Tying the Knot, A Feminist Womanist Guide to Muslim Marriage in America. It is open access, so you can go to Boston University Library's open access repository and start reading it right now. Thank you for joining us today.